today on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. God's not going to be used as a means to any other end. God is the end. God is only known by people who want to know Him for Him. Why do the wise and understanding miss God? One, because their hearts are blind and that can't be overcome by anything that they do. They miss God because God reveals these things to children. God does it in a way that shatters their pride and God will not be used as a means to any other end. Hey, thanks for joining us on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. I'm your host, Molly Vitovich. Today, Pastor J.D. continues a sermon that we began yesterday titled, The Hiddenness of Jesus. He will explain to us why some of the smartest and most religious people throughout history have failed to recognize the existence of God. How can some people be so blind? And what should a believer say to a doubter? This is an important teaching from God's Word today on the program, so we hope that you're able to use it right away to share the gospel with those around you. If you missed the first part of today's message, you can always catch up online at jdgreer.com. Now let's rejoin Pastor J.D. in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 10, let me give you the context of this story. Jesus suggested that his apostles to announce the arrival of his kingdom in the surrounding cities. He arms them with the power of miracles. They're able to cast out demons. They're able to heal the sick, make the blind see. Well, his apostles get a mixed reaction. There were some people, a fairly large number of people, that enthusiastically believe the message that the apostles preached about it. But a lot of people in the cities reject the message. And a lot of the people who rejected were the right people, if you know what I mean. The people of influence, the political leaders, the religious leaders, right? Jesus' reaction to this. You're going to see it, Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Those were two of the cities that were filled with the right kind of people. That's where a lot of your religious leaders live. That's where a lot of your, your capitals were of, 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 of power and, and the capital of education and the capitals of, of religion. For if the mighty works, he says, done in you had instead been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are two notoriously wicked enemy Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon. If the works that had been done in you Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in those Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And you, Capernaum, Capernaum was another famous Jewish city that was filled with the right kind of people. You, who were so full of religious leaders who study so hard to become wise, will you be exalted to heaven with all your impressive learning about God? No, you will be brought down to hell, to Hades. Then Jesus says to his apostles, the one who hears you, you see, hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the rejection of these right people by him didn't bother him that much because he knew who he was. He knew that God approved of him. So he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, there's your word, hidden, underline it, circle it, write it down, prick your finger, dab it in blood, whatever it takes. That's your key word. These things, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Verse 23, then turning to his disciples, he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. I got two questions I'm going to try to ask of this text, okay? Number one, why do the wise and the understanding, why is it that they miss God? And then the second question I want to ask of this text is, how do we find certainty in what to believe about God? Question number one. Why do the wise and understanding miss God? Here we go. I'm going to give you four logical premises. Number one, because our hearts are naturally blind. 
The Gospel of Luke repeatedly presents men and women in a natural state of blindness. We saw this when Jesus first launched his ministry in Luke 4 and described what it was going to be like. He said that one of his primary tasks was going to be to open the eyes of the blind. And yes, he was talking about the physically blind, but he was talking about something even more significant than that, and that was the spiritually blind. Those people who were unable to see the glory of God that was all around them. The blindness of our hearts was a kind of willful blindness that grew out of our sinful attitudes, our sinful disposition. What the Bible teaches you is that God the Holy Spirit restores your mind so that all of a sudden your eyes are open and you start to see evidence that's all around you. You're like, how could I not have seen this before? But it takes a change of the heart to be able to see that kind of evidence. Number two, God will not be found through human achievement because if he could be, that would contribute to human pride. If the way to find God, for example, were through mastering science, then the really smart scientists would say, we found God because we were smarter than everybody else. We know God and truth best because we're the smartest and we went to the best schools. They would boast if the way to find God was through religious piety. Then the really religious people would say, we found God because we were morally superior to everybody else. And they would boast that their personal goodness was what enabled them to find God. God says, you will not find me through anything that would allow you to boast. In fact, in this passage, Jesus says, God, you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you have revealed them of your own choice to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Grace means we didn't deserve it. It was your gracious will. Nobody knows who the Father is, verse 22, except the Son, and anybody to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other, words, in other words, Jesus says, God, people who find you, find you only because you reveal yourself to them. In fact, they didn't really even find you, you found them. The way Paul says it in Ephesians 2 is this way. Paul says, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. And then he says, and that is not of yourself. The word that there in Greek modifies faith. So in other words, even the faith to believe in God was not something of yourself. It was the gift of God. Not of works. Wasn't because you were smarter. Wasn't because you were, were more spiritual naturally. Not because you were more religious and a better person. It was a gift. Not of works so that nobody can boast. You see, y'all, God reveals himself in a way that goes to war against human pride because pride is the source of all of our other sins. Pride makes us feel independent. Pride says, you know what? I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. Doggone it, people like me. I, I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. And that means that I ought to be the one in charge. I ought to be the one who calls the shots. I'm better off on my own. Pride leads to a sense of superiority. It leads to entitlement. Pride and sin have the same middle letter. I point this out to my kids. I. I want to do what I want to do because I'm good enough. And I'm better off on my own. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I'm more important. I'm the point. So I get to make the most of the rules. And I care most about myself because it's all about me. So at every stage, God's salvation process is designed to go to war against our pride and humble us. Which is why the gospel is so offensive. Because at every stage, it is trying to tear down what you've been trying to build up all of your life. And that is a sense of, I am independent. I am 
good enough. And at every stage of the salvation process, because pride is the source of all of the other sins, God goes to war against it. I'll give you an example in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus referred to this story back a few weeks ago when we were studying Luke 4, the story of Naaman. Naaman was the captain of the Syrian guard. He arguably was one of the top three most powerful, rich, influential people in the world. He's got leprosy. He's going to die. So a little 12-year-old servant girl in his house says, I know a man that can heal you. It's the prophet Elisha. Naaman's desperate, so he takes a big caravan down to see Elisha. He takes millions of dollars. He takes an army. It's very impressive. You know, a bunch of limousines roll up into Elisha's driveway, right? Naaman sends somebody in to go get Elisha. God tells Elisha, don't you go out there and see him. Send an intern. We talk about being humiliated. You know, Naaman here is one of the top three guys in the world, and out comes Elisha's intern. Uh, sorry, Elisha's too busy. He can't talk to you right now. He's playing, you know, PS2, and, and he's not got time for you. You're not on his, his schedule yet. And Naaman says, well, I need leprosy, and I've heard that he could heal me. And, and, and he says, the intern says, well, I'll go ask him. So he goes in there and asks Elisha, and Elisha says, okay, here's what we got to do. Um, first of all, I'm not coming and seeing him. He'll never see my face. Um, he's going to have to go dip in the Jordan River. Now, where Elisha lived, the Jordan River was basically a little creek. It was muddy. It was nasty. And Naaman was like, that place is nasty. I brought millions of dollars. I've got hundreds and thousands of soldiers. Give me something else. I'll buy it from him. Intern runs in there and tells Elisha. Elisha sends a message back out and says, nope, you're going to have to get in that water in your tunic, your loincloth, in your underwear in front of everybody, you're going to be humiliated, and that's how you're going to be healed. Well, Naaman doesn't want to do it. Eventually, he caves to it because he doesn't know any other options. And he, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know the story. He goes out to the Jordan River, and he, in disgust, he dips down in that river, and he goes down one time, two times. On that seventh time, he comes up. Remember the story in Sunday school? Again, the flannel graph board, and the teacher takes the Naaman with the leprosy and puts him back and gets the new Naaman out. It says his skin was like a baby skin. The whole process was designed to humble Naaman because Naaman wanted to purchase it because he was strong, he was rich. And God says, no, that's the source of all your problems anyway, so I'm going to humble you. Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are preaching the gospel, they heal a guy. And when they, they heal a guy, they heal him in the name of Jesus, and the religious leaders don't like it, so they get him in a room and tell him to cut it out. One of the things they point out to these guys is, is they were, Acts 4.13, they were ignorant and unlearned men. In other words, they, they, they weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. They didn't graduate from the right schools. They weren't even that smart. They spoke in hick Hebrew. They had a thick accent. He's like, you guys aren't even smart. And Peter's response, and let me summarize it, okay? These aren't his exact words, but this is essentially what he's saying. Peter's like, look, I'm not saying we're smarter than you guys. In fact, that's pretty obvious. You guys got more degrees on your wall than a thermometer, all right? I mean, I, I get it. You guys watch History Channel. We watch Sports Center. You're smarter than we are. I understand that. But all I'm saying is we saw a guy that came back from the dead. And no offense to you, but his coming back from the dead trumps the degrees on your wall, right? I mean, if you got a choice on what to believe, and your choice is guys who got a bunch of degrees and somebody who came back from the dead, always go with the guy who came back from the dead. That's just a general rule of thumb. And Peter's like, look, it has nothing to do with our smartness or our goodness. We're not that smart. It's just that we saw a guy get out of the grave, and we can't help but believe what we've seen and heard. The way that God revealed himself was in a way that was designed to humble you. You're listening to Summit Life with Pastor J.D. Greer. 
We hope you've been enjoying this new teaching series called Kingdom Come, walking us through the Gospel of Luke. And I've got some exciting news for you. We are also offering a brand new resource written by Pastor JD to go along with it. Right now, we are sending our faithful supporters a copy of Kingdom Come, 20 Devotions from Luke, so that you can dive even deeper into the teachings of this important book. Like most of our resources, we've designed this to be helpful to you in growing in your own personal faith, but it's also a valuable tool that you could pass along to a friend or a loved one once you're finished reading through it. Or even better, maybe do the study with someone else as a way to help them grow. We're all about making disciples here at Summit Life. So to get a hold of your copy, just give us a call with your gift. You can reach us at 866-335-5220 or give online at jdgreer.com. Now let's get back to today's teaching. Once again, here's Pastor JD. Now I know, listen, a lot of Christians are arrogant. They do think they're better. They do think they're smarter. They argue that way. They talk that way. They talk that they're more righteous than you, but that just proves they don't get the gospel. Because none of us know the gospel because we were wise and understanding. We only know it because God revealed it to us as if we were children. And you show me somebody who is a jerk, who is triumphalistic, who talks down to people who aren't Christians, I'll show you somebody that even if they profess the gospel doesn't really know it. Number three, here's the third reason that the wise and understanding miss God. Number three, because God will be found only by those with a childlike heart. God will be found only by those with a childlike heart. Verse 21 Verse 21, he says, hey, you revealed these things to children. People with childlike hearts recognize the truth about God when it is presented to them. Now, don't go off here. Childlike heart does not mean dumb or simplistic. And Luke, as we've studied, a childlike heart is humble. It it doesn't think more about itself than it should. A childlike heart is submissive. It recognizes authority, namely the authority of God. A childlike heart is not cynical. People with a childlike heart look at the evidence for Jesus and they see that it is true. In other words, what he's saying is your belief in Jesus has less to do with the quality of the evidence and more to do with the state of your heart. Or or here's an analogy I've heard. The same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. The difference is not in the sun that is shining, the difference is in the material that it is shining upon. And so the same evidence convinces some people that Jesus is true and convinces some other people that he's not true, and that has more to do with the state of their heart than it does the quality of the evidence. Does that make sense? Let me give you two examples of this, one from the Scriptures and one from my own life. Um, From the Scriptures, uh, another gospel, John, John chapter 7, verse 3. So Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For nobody works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, right? If you do these things for real, show yourself to the world. Now, I'm reading that sarcastically. Why? Because that's the way they're asking it. They don't believe in him. Jesus' own brothers don't believe in him. In fact, in case you doubt that, it's in the next verse. For even his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers don't believe that he's God. By the way, these are the other sons of Mary and Joseph. So if you believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, you've got a major problem right here. So don't believe what the church leaders say. Believe what the Bible says. Jesus had other half-brothers who were Mary and Joseph's kids, and Jesus was, of course, Mary's kid and God's kid. Jesus goes on, verse 7, The world hates me because I testify about it. That is 
works are evil. Why don't they believe in me? Why do they hate me? Because they have blind hearts. Because they have evil hearts. They have arrogant hearts. It has less to do with the quality of the evidence and more to do with the state of their heart. Verse 17, look at this. Unbelievable. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Did you see what that said? If anybody wills to do God's will, they will automatically know whether or not the teaching is really from God or whether or not this is all made up. In other words, the desire to know God and submissiveness to God precedes the knowledge of God. The desire to know God and submissiveness to God precedes the knowledge of God. Here's the example from my own life. Years ago when I was in college, I knew a Muslim college student um, who, she was from Turkey, uh, her American name that she gave herself was Caroline. She was part of the circle of friends I was in. We spent many nights talking to her at length about who Jesus was. She was very interested in Jesus, but she kept asking a lot of really difficult questions about like, I don't understand how the Trinity could be there, but, and, and things that were really good questions, but it became apparent that that really what was behind these questions is the fact that she'd grown up Muslim and she knew that if she ever decided to become a follower of Jesus, it was going to cost her significantly. And so finally, late one night, it was about 10 o'clock one night, we were sitting in a circle and we were talking, and I looked at her and I said, Caroline, let me just ask you a question. Let's say that all of a sudden, in this circle, Jesus appeared. He just appeared, he showed you himself, who he was, and then he looked at you and said, Caroline, everything these people are telling you about me is true. Everything the Bible says is true. The Trinity is true. And Caroline, to be my follower, you're going to have to leave everything to follow me. It's going to cost you everything. I looked at her and I said, Caroline, if that were the case, would you suspend all of your objections and would you surrender all of your life to possess Jesus? She kind of sat back and she said, I guess that's the issue, isn't it? I don't really know whether or not I want to know the truth about God. Because I'm not sure I'm willing to go wherever it leads me. We ended up talking for another hour. We broke for the night. She called me next morning, about 7 o'clock. She says, I need you guys to come back over here. And, and, uh, and I, I said, why? She said, well, let me just say when you get here. So we get over there. She said, I could not quit thinking about that. I went home. She says, I thought about it for about an hour. Went past midnight. She says, I finally came to a point somewhere around 1 o'clock in the morning where I said, you know what, God, I want to know the truth about you. I will do whatever you say. I will go wherever you tell me to go. I'll possess you even if it costs me everything. I'm ready to know you. She said, I, I went to sleep. She said, I fell asleep probably about 1, 1.30. She said, at 3.30 in the morning, I was awakened by someone knocking at my door vigorously, repeatedly. I tried to ignore it. I thought it was something going on in the dorm around me. She said, but it was my door. They were knocking. She said, finally, after what seemed like several minutes, I got up, I walked to the door, I opened it. There was nobody there. She said, at that point, I knew. She said, I believe that dream was sent to me by God telling me that he was saying, I'm ready to come to you now because you're ready to go wherever I tell you to go. She says, I got down. I walked back into my room. I got down on my knees beside my bed, and I said, Jesus, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but I know that you're true, and I will possess you even if it costs me everything. And I said, well, I said, now, Caroline, are you, are you understand what you're saying here because you come from a Muslim country and a Muslim family. You know what this is going to mean. She said, of course. I called my parents at 415 and I told them that I believed the truth about Jesus and I needed to do whatever he told me to do. 
you see what, what, I'm, what I'm getting at there? Surrender to God precedes knowledge about God. And some of you need to ask yourself that very question. You need to ask yourself whether or not you really are willing to do whatever God tells you to do and go wherever he tells you to go, because until you quit asking, until you agree to that, he's not going to show you anything. Submission to God often precedes knowledge about God. Some of you will never see the truth about God because you're not willing to surrender things you believe about sex and morality. You're not willing to see the world the way that God will tell you to see it. And because you have a proud, stiff-necked, rebellious heart, of course you'll never see God. In fact, let me give you a couple other verses here from other parts of the Bible. Jeremiah 29, 13. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek for me with all your heart. I will let you find me. Did you see that? I'll let you find me. This is like, it's like me playing hide and seek with my kids. When they find me, it's because I let them find me. Because I'm awesome at hide and seek. They never, I mean, of course, I'm an adult. They're kids. They're, they're, they're five years old. They don't know that daddy hides on the roof and they can never find him up there. I let myself be found by them. And God says, you can't find me. I let you find me. And I'll only let you find me if you seek for me with all your heart, with all your soul. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near unto all of them that call upon him truly. You're like, God, why don't you reveal yourself? Because you've got a double-minded heart, that's why. Until you're surrendered, God's not going to show you anything. Submission to God precedes knowledge of God. Number four, God will be found by those who want to know him, not use him for something else. Several times in this series, I've talked to you about people who don't want to know God, but instead want to use him. I've used the example of a pinata, and I've told you God is not your pinata, and faith is not a whacking stick that you Hit God just right with your whacking stick of faith and out from the pinata comes whatever you need. God's not going to be used as a means to any other end. God is the end. God is only known by people who want to know him for him. All of us have the experience, do we not, of having a friend who only calls us when they need something from us. Anybody have that experience? They only call you when it's time for them to move. And you're like, I've heard this song before. You call me whenever you need something from me. And none of us like that, do we? We want to be known for us, not for what we can do for somebody. God is only known by those who want to know him for him. God, listen, God reveals himself in a way that the only way you'll find him is if you want to know him for him, not for what he can do for you. Otherwise, he obscures himself so that you'll miss him. God reveals himself in a way that the only way you'll ever know him is if you want to know him for him. Otherwise, he obscures himself so you won't find him. Why do the wise and understanding miss God? One, because their hearts are blind and that can't be overcome by anything that they do. They miss God because God reveals these things to children. God does it in a way that shatters their pride, and God will not be used as a means to any other end. The greatest gift God has given us is Himself. Have you ever considered that? Knowing God is a gift. You are listening to Pastor J.D. Greer on Summit Life. Today's message is part of our teaching series titled Kingdom Come. And if you'd like to listen to this message again or share it with a friend, you can find it online at jdgreer.com. Pastor J.D. challenged his own church, the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, to be reading the book of Luke along with this study. Because if there's one thing that'll transform your walk with the Lord, it's spending one-on-one time in God's word. If you'd like to take that challenge and read through the book of Luke as we move through this study, we have a tool to help you do it. As our way of saying thanks when you donate to support this ministry, we'll send you a copy of Kingdom Come, 20 Devotions from Luke. 
You know, Summit Life is funded by listeners just like you. So when you give, you're actually giving to another listener and helping them experience the gospel in a deep and meaningful way. Join that mission by giving today and remember to ask for this collection of devotionals. You can also ask about becoming a monthly supporter we call a gospel partner when you call 866-335-5220 or give online at jdgreer.com. Before we close, let me remind you that if you aren't yet signed up for our email list, you'll want to do that today. It is the best way to stay up to date with Pastor JD's latest blog posts. And we'll also make sure that you never miss a new resource or series. It's quick and easy to sign up at jdgreer.com. I'm Molly Vitovich, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for the conclusion of Pastor JD's message titled The Hiddenness of Jesus. That's Wednesday on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. Today's program was produced and sponsored by J.D. Greer Ministries.